0: Good morning, y'all. Could uh, find your way back to a chair. My name's Randy, one of the teaching team, kind of the primary one in this season. Uh, But we do graciously have numerous others that uh, join us, as will be uh, happening in May. For the past six months, uh, we've been in a series called Following Jesus, His Life and Teaching, which essentially, at its core, we are still continuing in. However, we've arrived at uh, the teaching that is called the Sermon on the Mount. And so we are going to be here for a while. Um, making our way through this amazing uh, section of material. And uh, for those of you who are guests, we do pass out a handout, which you should have, but that will be for next Sunday. And uh, that's a, to help you as, um, during the week to potentially join me as I'm reflecting on the passage for the upcoming Sunday. And uh, would look and encourage you to use that tool uh, during your times with God in the week. Um, in May, Claire and I are going to be on vacation celebrating our sixtieth birthdays and our fortieth wedding anniversary. So you are not going to see us for three Sundays in a row, which i don't I think is historical since maybe 20 years ago or something, but anyway, and uh, graciously, we have uh, Tommy Hayes that will be teaching two Sundays of that uh, time, and then uh, Joy. Crampton as well will be teaching on Mother's Day. So this Sunday and next will be uh, predominantly an intro to the Sermon on the Mount, uh, followed by, of course, looking at who are the people who are blessed in a few weeks. So uh, I I found it interesting as I began preparing and reflecting on this material, as I did uh, have been for some time now, That immediately before the Sermon on the Mount, both Matthew and Luke include a summary description about Jesus and his ministry. And this week, we're going to be looking at Luke's summary, uh, and then next Sunday, we're going to be using Matthew's summary as our springboard for an introduction to talk about the Sermon on the Mount. Here's what Luke says immediately preceding the Sermon on the Mount. Coming down from the mountain, Jesus stood on a level place. The twelve and a large crowd of his disciples, along with a great multitude of people from all over Judea, Jerusalem, and the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon were there. They had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. Everyone was seeking to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Then he began to teach them. Before we head into today's material, let's pray. Father, I was um, touched as we... Sang that song of your goodness. I wake up with those words on my mind many, many days. You are good. You are so good. And here, as we reflect on a a passage that demonstrates who you are and what you desire for us as humans, I'm undone. And I welcome you to continue to do it and to do it more. And where there are hindrances, where there are misunderstandings, where we just don't get it, would you help us? Even as we move into uh, this material over the next months, would you help us, Holy Spirit, to understand Jesus' teaching? Would you give us the perspective that Jesus intended? And would we be changed and transformed into the kind of people that he describes? In Jesus' name, let it be so. Coming down from the mountain, Jesus stood on a level place. When I was talking to Clara this week about the passage, she mentioned how these words and actions parallel the Old Testament story of Moses coming down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of stone containing the Ten Commandments, which I had not thought of. So thank you, Clara, who's in with kids today. And while I think it is both true that Jesus physically came down a mountain and that the Holy Spirit and the Gospel writers desire us to see this parallel between he and Moses, it's very, very important that we make a number of distinctions. Moses is thought of as one of the greatest prophets of God. Exodus thirty-three eleven says of him, the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. Moses was an amazing man, used of God mightily, and his writings were amazing. But Jesus and his words were greater than Moses. The writer of Hebrews says this about them. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, testifying to what would be said in the future. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. Jesus was not another prophet among prophets. Jesus was incarnate. And in him, we have the most clear picture of God ever revealed. The Apostle John said this of Jesus, No one has ever seen God. It is God the only Son who is close to the Father's heart who has made him known. Now, that is in contrast to what was spoken of a moment ago about Moses seeing God face to face. And I think that what John is trying to say is that Compared to the knowing that Jesus had of God the Father and as incarnate Son of God, no one else comes close, including Moses, to have a clarity and an understanding about who God really is. Jesus said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And then the Apostle Paul said of Jesus, Christ is the visible likeness of the invisible God. When we look at Jesus, when we hear his teachings and hear him sharing about God and saying things like eternal life is knowing the Father. And when he says, truly, truly, I say to you, We can look to those declarations as descriptions of the clearest, most understandable pictures of God. The Apostle Paul speaks of, um, in this season of life, we as human beings see through a cloud, or as in a mirror dimly. But there will come a time when we will see Fully, even as we are seen or known fully. We will know fully. And there is a sense in which all the other writers see God, but none in comparison to what we see in Jesus. I think that's really important to recognize and understand. Through Jesus, we have the clearest words and descriptions of all Scripture as to who God is, what he is like, and how we're to know him. John 14, 24, Jesus said, The words which you hear are not mine, but the Father's who sent me. In Matthew eleven eleven, Jesus describes John the Baptist saying, I tell you the truth, of all who have ever lived, none is greater than John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the greatest prophet being the one who said, here he is. Yet in John 5, Jesus says, you sent messengers to John and he testified to the truth, but I have a testimony greater than John's. Jesus knew the Father. Jesus from all eternity had been with the Father. What he says and describes about the Father is true. It can be counted on. In the Sermon on the Mount, five times, Jesus says, You have heard it said, but I say to you. Two of those that he references are of the Ten Commandments. In the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to be able to see something of greater revelation than what had ever been seen before. And in and through the life, the ministry, the death and resurrection of Jesus, a newness of understanding, a testimony, a vision of who God is that is clear not muddy. Some of the pictures or portraits of God that were understood and described in the Old Testament were cloudy. They were obscure. But the picture we have of God and Jesus and the cross shows us a God of love and mercy. A God who is patient, not wanting any to perish, but all. To come to repentance. And repentance means to rethink our thinking in light of the revelation of God that is in and through Jesus. Everything we think we know must be viewed through the person, life, ministry, teaching, and presentation of Jesus. Another distinction that I think needs to be made between Moses and Jesus is that while Moses gave us the law, Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount should not be read or understood as laws. The Apostle John said in John one seventeen, The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace is the empowering presence of God. Truth is the reality about God and who He is that is clearer than anything that has been presented before. When the Sermon on the Mount is approached as law, we can easily misunderstand what Jesus is saying, and we can see what He says perhaps as things that we must do and not do, like the Ten Commandments. And if those things are seen that way, they certainly are laws that are impossible to keep. Instead, I propose, as others have done, that rather than the Sermon on the Mount being a set of laws, they are pictures and descriptions of the eternal kind of life. In the summary descriptions given by Matthew and Luke, Immediately preceding this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus demonstrates the presence of God's kingdom and rule. The sick were healed. Outcasts were welcomed. Those influenced by demonic activity were set free. And in these summaries, Jesus healed them all. Then in the sermon, Jesus describes to them this eternal kind of life that's now available to them through him. The kingdom of God is now. The kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is at hand. He just demonstrated the kingdom of God and he says, now let me tell you about it. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace in the Christian community is often thought of as unmerited favor, but is best understood as God's empowering presence. And and perhaps From my perspective, the most practical way to understand it is grace is God acting with us. Grace is God acting with us. So the law, seen as something we must do and keep through Moses, but through Jesus came the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit, God empowering and acting with us. And the truth that came through Jesus is about who God really is and what He is like and how we're to know Him. And that He invites us to abide in Him and He will abide in us. This is clearly a different kind of life and understanding than what was given to us in the law. Paul says the law was given as a tutor. I don't have that material in here. I've taught it before. The law was given to help us see that we can't do it on our own, real honestly. And God knows that. He knew that then. He still knows it. But he's providing to us something different. He's providing to us his very self to live in us, to empower and enable us to live the life we were designed, destined, created to live. Now. Not just the life after we die, that thing in heaven that's going to be, you know, harps and sitting on clouds and, you know, I don't know what else those pictures give us, but not the truth. Our lives are about working with God. We have been set apart in Genesis as those who will rule with God. And New Testament passages continue to echo those things. God is not a distant God, as the law might suggest. He is. God with us, Emmanuel. He is not a giant policeman waiting for us to do something wrong so he can spank us. He is a God of love and mercy not wanting any to experience the perishing life, but all to change their mind about how they are living on their own and to live in the kingdom with God, to live the eternal kind of life, the God life now, the with God life, in contrast to a perishing life. Next statement. Jesus stood on a level place. Coming down from the mountain, Jesus stood on a level place. When I was using this passage this week for my devotions in the morning, the very first thing that jumped out on me the first day were these words, Jesus stood on a level place. You go, why? So? Jesus did not stand above us nor above the people, though he was God. Jesus humbled himself, taking on human flesh, living where we live, experiencing what we experience, suffering as we suffer. Jesus stooped down from heaven to be on our level. And he did this so that he could look into people's eyes. So that he could touch us where we hurt and allow us to touch him and his love. Jesus met us and continues to meet us today not at, at, as an exalted role or position, though that is what he has. He meets us as an Emmanuel, a God with us at our level. A great multitude. The twelve and a large crowd of his disciples, along with a great multitude of people from all over Judea, Jerusalem, the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon were there. You know, when we think about Jesus, we often picture him, you know, by the Sea of Galilee or a boat on the sea or sitting with the twelve debriefing their day. But in reality, in these middle years probably or so of Jesus' three years, his days were full of thousands and thousands, potentially and thousands of people pushing their way to him for healing for themselves and their loved ones. At the point of the uh, story of feeding of the 5,000, it is clearly understood by all biblical uh, scholars that Jesus was referencing how many men were present. And there would have been women and children as well. That's a big crowd. I mean, I've been you know, at the Spurs uh, Stadium. How many people, anybody know? What is the seating at at and 18,000. So I've been in a crowd. That's, so two-thirds of that, 12,000-something was what was there on the Sermon on the Mount. We don't know how many here, but the word great, multitude, is really the word plethora. A plethora of people. Like, there's no, not even a word. We might say there's millions and millions, or there's thousands and thousands. Picture a wide-level plain at the foot of a mountain filled with thousands and thousands of people clamoring for his attention. And one by one, he speaks to them with tender words, listening to their woes, touching them, speaking to their condition, and they're being healed. And he moves on to the next cluster of people. He does it again and again and again. Again and again, he makes his way through a crowd until all... Are healed. The level of physical, emotional, mental, and social output would have been exhausting. It it would have been impossible, except he didn't do it on his own. He was fully human, facing the same kind of exhaustion, difficulty, pain, struggle that we would feel if we tried doing that task. But Jesus lived and did what he did with the Father through the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. It's a picture to us of how we are supposed to get through our difficulties, the challenges we face, those times when we get notified of information that just is like overwhelming, that we can't imagine, there's no way I can get through this on my own. Exactly. We can't. We never were supposed to. God never intended us to live life on our own. That's the perishing life. Life without God is the perishing life. God intends us to have life, which is life with Him. There's only those two options. Now, as I shared this morning with someone, everyone on the planet experiences God's true life. The the sun shines on the good and the bad. The rain falls on the good and the bad. All of us have oxygen. All of us have bodies that are predominantly given towards healing. There's problems that, that are a result of evil in our world and in our bodies that make that a little challenging at times. But everyone is experiencing elements of God's life. But to the degree that we make choices to turn from God and His ways, we begin to diminish. We begin to perish. I brought up John 3.16 does not say speak about death and eternal life. It speaks about perishing and eternal life. It's about this diminishing and distancing that we experience when we turn from God and do our own thing. And the Sermon on the Mount is not going to be about rules and regulations about how, what things we're supposed to do. At its core, it's a talk about the with God life and what it will be like when we are living with God. What the eternal kind of life looks like. We're going to be going through this, these passages pretty slowly. So join me week by week as we read the passages. But I would encourage you as well over the next few months, pull out the Sermon on the Mount sometime and got 30 minutes. You can read the whole thing in about 30 minutes. And just even now, begin to look at it as not rules and regulations, but what, what can, how can you read if, if we said that this is what Jesus is describing a kind of person? The kind of people that we would be. The kind of life we could experience if we were living according to the eternal kind of life. Just encourage you. There's going to be questions. There's statements in there that just don't make sense. But I'll give you a little hint. The one near the end that references and says that wide is the path that leads to destruction and easy it is and narrow is the path that leads to life and few find it is not talking about death and life after we die. The destroyed, wide is the path that leads to destruction has as its root the idea of perishing. Jesus is describing the easy way on the planet Earth is to live the perishing life. Many find it. But those that find eternal life, not heaven after we die, those that find and begin to live the eternal kind of life now are few. And that's really true. All of us in this room, struggle with experiencing the God life and the perishing life. And when we find an experience, the with God life, we are, we are finding the narrow way, the afflicted way is a word that's in that material. All right. Uh, probably need to wrap this up. They sought and came to him, They had come to him and to be healed of their diseases, and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. What I find in these words is a picture of the broken and perishing life. I see the neediness that so many people, including Christians, experience in life. The words those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured might be contemporized by saying those caught up in the grip of addiction, anger, bitterness, anxiety, and depression through demonic influence and control were set free. Not that those conditions are always manifestations of demonic influence, but where demonic influence is having its expression, they were set free. That is what the love of God through Jesus looked like, and it still looks like that today. Speaking metaphorically of Satan, Jesus tells us in John 10.10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Picture of perishing. But I came to give life in all its fullness. We need to notice that these people were not passive. They sought Jesus. They came to him. They, They expressed an action of faith. They understood that they did not have the resources to deal with their situation. We, on the other hand, have a tendency to be self-reliant, thinking, I've got this, I can handle this, when in reality we don't, and we can't. One might be tempted to think, well, God, you know my needs, so how about you just take care of it? Which I see at the other end of that spectrum. The Apostle James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. In the last sentence of Luke's summary, he says, everyone was seeking to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them. There's a seeking, a a pursuit of God that is a part of our action of faith. We see it throughout the gospel accounts. The woman with the issue of blood, if I can only touch the hem of his garment." The centurion on behalf of his servant. Jesus, if you would speak the word, my, my servant. The leader whose daughter was near death who had come to Jesus. There is a, a seeking. And, and honestly, do we not see very commonly in our world that people reach to God when they're at rock bottom? When they've come to the end of their own resources, God, would you help me? And he says, You gotta be kidding. What? What? You weren't seeking me when things were going well. What's up with that? No, no. No, oh, he just graciously, lovingly helps us up, brushes the dirt. I'm here for you. That's what love does. Gang, we have a God of love. We have a God of love that's demonstrated in and through Jesus. I want to conclude our time by taking a few minutes to experience this passage through imaginative reflection. The imagination, I believe, can be thought of as the organ of seeing, hearing, and even experiencing in the spiritual realm. I've suggested that I I wonder if the imagination prior to the fall was, was in fact the way or means that they saw and walked with God in the garden. I don't know. We don't have a clarity for that. But the imagination is a powerful expression of who we are and our personhood. And yet too frequently we've sort of said, well, that's, the imagination has to do with make-believe. But the reality is we use our imagination every day, every, every day every, all day long, When you drive home this afternoon, you're going to be using your imagination. In fact, all of you just went there right now. Drive home in your head. Right turn, left turn, straight, freeway, not freeway, you're there. You got home. Garage door, no garage door, right? That's your imagination. That's what I'm going to encourage us this morning. Using the imagination is a way for us to connect with God in a kind of more tangible way than just thoughts. I've mentioned how the people in this story sought and came to Jesus. And I want to give us a chance to seek Jesus this morning and to connect with him through imagining the scene described in our passage today. And if you're comfortable doing so, I would invite you to close your eyes. This will create perhaps space for the the Holy Spirit to come To use our imagination to encounter God and his love? Holy Spirit, we welcome you here now. Would you show us all things? Would you lead us in this time of connecting with Jesus? Imagine if you can this multitude of people spread out across this plain in front of the mountain. Imagine that you're there with them, you're among them. And that you, like them, have come to hear and to be healed by Jesus. Take a moment to imagine looking around at the crowd. What kind of people do you see? What do they look like? How are they dressed? Can you see those that are sick or ill or injured scattered throughout the crowd? You've come to touch Jesus, too. You've come to seek him and to be healed. But looking at the size of the crowd, it it seems impossible. There's no way you're going to be able to reach him. How does that make you feel? But then you see Jesus ministering to a group of people not far from you. What are you going to do? Then Jesus looks up and sees you. And he begins to walk towards you. And you move towards him. As you reach him, he faces you. He looks deeply into your eyes. What do you see on his face? What are you feeling at that moment? Now Jesus begins to speak softly to you. So just you can hear. What is he saying to you now? What do you want to say back to him? Is there anything you want to say to him? Is there a question you have? Jesus steps closer to you now. and He wraps his arms around you and he's holding you close. And he whispers, I love you. Then he softly says, I need to go to the others now. But I'm always with you. I never leave you. And then he slips away into the crowd. Jesus, thank you for being with us today. Thank you that those words are true, that you love us. Each one of us desperately love us, passionately love us, daily long to wrap your arms around us and hold us. Like a parent or a grandparent holds a child or the grandchild. Would you help us to live our life with you? Would you help us to minimize the diminishing life by helping us to make the kinds of decisions that enable us to live with you in your love, to experience your love, be filled with your love, and would you help us to love others like you love us? That's the eternal kind of life. It's all about love. Your love poured into us and your love spilling from us onto others. Would you help us to learn how to seek you, to take time, To be with you. To find the way to pause in our day and remember that you're with us. That when we do face troubles and trials and difficulties that you want to be with us in that. And that when we're experiencing joys and beautiful things, that you are the giver of all that beauty and all that good, and that you want to be with us as we enjoy what you have given to us. Like somebody watching a dear one open a present. Have your way in our lives. Help us to seek you. In Jesus' name, let it be so. Thanks for hanging out with us uh, today. I hope you enjoyed your moment there with Jesus. Hope that was a good thing for you. Um, we, at the end of our service, provide an opportunity for those who would like to receive prayer. Perhaps you're experiencing some difficulty challenge in your life. Maybe an area that you need some healing, physical healing or emotional uh, we'll have folks up here that would love to, to pray with you. Please take advantage of that. It's a little bit like God being with you for us to come alongside you. Jesus said and called us to heal the sick and to love and forgive and so one another. And so we're here. would love to do that. Have a great uh, afternoon and a great week and we'll see you again next Sunday. Blessings.